Welcome to episode 360 of On The Schmooze. Let's do this. Welcome to On The Schmooze, the podcast that highlights talented people from different fields, explores how they built strong networks, and overcame challenges on their way to becoming successful leaders. Now here's your host, Robbie Samuels. I'm developing a new checklist and a new talk called Overcome Common Virtual Meeting Mistakes to Increase Engagement in Sales. This has led me to set up market research calls with six and seven figure online entrepreneurs and their teams to discuss the challenges, snafus and disruptions they've experienced while using Zoom to launch new products or deliver their programs. If you'd be open to scheduling a call, I'd greatly appreciate it. And I'd share the new checklist with you and your team so you can avoid some of these mistakes in the future. I'm also offering a group training session for six and seven figure online entrepreneurs and their teams. To schedule an event optimization assessment call, please fill out this form and I'll be in touch. It's available at robbysamuels.com forward slash Zoom insights. Again, the link to the form is robbysamuels.com forward slash Zoom insights. If you have an important launch event on your 2023 or 2024 to-do list, you can book a private training with me for your organization that includes personalized strategy sessions to help you implement these changes, develop more interactive, inclusive, and transformational virtual programs. Next, a word from our sponsor, and then we'll dive into this week's interview. You may know you're listening to this show along the Marketing Podcast Network, but did you know there are other great shows on MPN to help your business? Christy Heiler hosts a fantastic podcast called Own It. Christy. Tell us more about the show. Own It is all about celebrating women and non-binary advertising agency owners. We talk about buying out of the Boys Club of Advertising because less than 1% of ad agencies are owned by women. And where can people subscribe? You can find the podcast at untilyouownit.com. We're also on the Marketing Podcast Network at marketingpodcast.net. And of course, you can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. You heard her. Go subscribe. Today's guest has dedicated his life to fostering understanding and acceptance for a misunderstood community. With a deep-rooted belief in the importance of education and advocacy, he's been at the forefront of providing resources, training, and support for transgender children, youth, and their families. In 2021, he took to the TEDx stage at the University of Washington, delivering a powerful talk titled, The Heart of the Matter, shedding light on the nuances of gender diversity and the importance of acceptance. In 2023, his groundbreaking book, Trans Children in Today's Schools, was published by Oxford University Press. This book serves as an essential guide for educators, parents, and anyone seeking to understand the experiences of trans children. He provides professional development, policy creation, athletics guidance, and education for parents and students. His unwavering commitment led to the founding of two organizations, Gender Diversity and TransFamilies.org. These organizations offer a beacon of hope with workshops, conferences, and outreach programs impacting families with gender-diverse children. Recognized as a trailblazer in the field and featured on the Oprah Winfrey Show, Larry King Live, and NPR's Fresh Air, he's been instrumental in shaping a world where gender diversity is celebrated and every individual feels seen and valued. His work has provided a haven for many and paved the way for a more inclusive and compassionate society, a visionary, an advocate, a true change maker. Please join me in welcoming Aiden Key. Welcome, Aiden. <laughs> Fantastic. Uh, it's always hard to hear the 
the prelude to coming on because it, it kind of overwhelms me to have it packaged up. Um, it's it's amazing, and I know there are things that are not in there because when I met you, you had were working on Gender Odyssey, which was a whole conference. It's not even mentioned, so right. <laughs> it's right. there's, a, there's a long history. Uh, when we met 20 years ago at the Creating Change Conference, you were already a mover and a shaker, doing great things. You're joining us from Juneau, Alaska, which is a great place to be in the middle of a pandemic. So good for you. Um, thanks for being here. As you know, this is a show about building strong networks and the context is leadership. So tell me, how do you define leadership? And when did you realize you had the skills to lead? I, I did not realize I had the skills to lead. I realized that what I was doing was considered leadership. And I got to tell you, I pushed hard against it. Uh, to me, uh, what, what uh, comprised leadership, I felt, was really uh, pushed on me. Um, and the only thing I felt like I was doing was saying, hey, we should get together and have a conversation. So I found a place. I named a date and time. I sent out invitations. That was the first uh, Gender Odyssey conference. Uh, and then I thought, well, we will make it what it needs to be. Um, but there was a lot of expectation about what should be in place already uh, and that I had responsibility for that, or at least that was, again, what was being presented to me. And I just thought, you know, you all make it happen. I'm, you know, I opened my door and said, come on in. Uh, so it was, it's this interesting balance of, of um, moving forward with that initial understanding of, hey, I'm just the host, um, to actually thinking of it as what, what um, is considered part of being a leader. Uh, so I had to, I had to, you know, kick and scream a little bit and then decide that if I wanted to keep doing those things, I needed to accept that leadership was, uh, that the title of leadership would go with it. Um, what did you think leadership meant at the time? Oh, I thought, oh, let's see. Um, you, you are on a sports team and you excel, um, athletically. You have a, um, you're a reliable player. Um, you model, um, some good, uh, sportsmanship, uh, you pull people together um, and then they elect you team captain or you're applying, you're going for public office and you knock on doors and you put out yard signs and people elect you and decide now you are our leader. So it's a really uh, uh, um, a decision to want that title um, and then a validation of others mm -hmm. um, in approving that by their vote or however that goes about. And that, that was how do point. you how do you think of leadership today then? I think if you pull people together to do something, you're you're gonna get it whether you want it or not. And so finding that peace with it, um, looking at what leadership means to each individual and how you go about it, um, the way I go about it is is uh, might be really different from someone else. Uh, for example, for me to to truly be the best leader I can be, you know, in essence, I feel like I need to be the best human I can be. And in some respects, that means um, if I want really powerful, frank, honest conversations, then I better figure out how to do it myself. Um, I better show up with that vulnerability if I want to 
um, provide an environment for others to be vulnerable. Um, and then also think about the responsibility that comes with being one person with one brain and one set of experiences in life and know that that is just one person. What about everyone else who is showing up? And that's, you know, that's the, the that's absolutely 100% going to be an ongoing commitment. And I think when I think about leadership too, um, it's not just doing those things. It's knowing you will be knocked down, hmm. knowing that critique will come. And sometimes critique is just sounds like a blissful word compared to um, some of the harshness that can come. And so it's examining how important is it? How committed am I um, where those situations can show up because they have and they will continue. What do I do with them? What do I learn from them? How do I keep them from crushing me, not them, other people, but the experience of it, of falling down, of being imperfect? And do I get back up and keep going? You know, I've been hosting this show, 350 plus episodes now, and I think you're the first to really address this piece of leadership which is interesting. And I think that because your experience is very community uh, led leadership where it's not formal leadership. Um, so, you know, the outspokenness of people who are not as happy with the results maybe channel differently than if it was in a formal environment, like in a, a workplace, um, you hear it and you hear it more loudly. Everyone thinks they could do a better job, but they don't. <laughs> um, so you're right. Like you're putting yourself out there, hoping others are going to follow you and some will, and then others will just sit back and critique, um, sometimes very harshly, <laughs> what they're seeing, uh, although they're not necessarily doing anything else. Um, I'm, I'm curious who you were when you were a kid, because for you to be the person in 2001 uh, to put forth, you know, hey, let's all get together, um, something led to that. So what were you like on the playground? You know, were you the kid organizing other kids in the playground, or were you sort of sitting back and watching? Did teachers sort of see potential in you? Did you see potential in you? Did you run for office? Were you part of any clubs and activities? Like kind of what kind of kid were you? I wouldn't necessarily say leadership was uh, showing up in a significant way, although I would, um, I did hold a, a, what do you call it? Student council position, one or two years of high school. Um, yeah, I played on the basketball team. I wasn't team captain. Um, on the playground, I'm the one that wants to play and with everybody and, and uh, oh, you know, stop being mean to that other person. I, I would intervene, that kind of stuff. But I think uh, when, when I look back uh, and what I experienced was that everyone considered me pretty likable. And okay, fantastic, whatever about that, right? So kind of not really ruffling feathers. But I'll tell you what. The feels like to the day that I began my gender transition, all of a sudden there was a radical change. Uh, and I've spent every day since pondering, exploring, poking at, peeling away layers to understand what that is about. What, what does it mean for my personal journey and the decisions I make for me? Why is it so volatile? Uh, that volatility has not decreased 
it has only ramped up. And what does it mean to be a human body that essentially, I mean, let's just say embodies societal upheaval? Um, that's, that's a challenging journey. It's one I, I reflect on every day because I, I just, again, I don't, if I don't do it, if I don't understand it, then I don't, um, I will not be able to successfully navigate it and it will crush me. I don't want to be crushed. I want to just affect the change that I can in such a powerful moment in time where, where that, the impact of one person is so explosively possible. Uh, you know that. I know that. And whoo, buckle up. So, yeah, I guess um, those are some things that I think about. Uh, and, and then, again, I have, to, I have to look at the layers that show up. What happens when the gender looks and presents one way and then uh, in a in a short period of time, it looks a different way. And what does society impose? Um, what do they decide? How does it, it doesn't matter if the exact same words came out of my mouth from, you know, before and after they are received far differently. Uh, it's just, it's just mind blowing. I could definitely relate to that. How, how old were you when you started this gender transition? Uh, I began that process, um, physically pro doing that process in my early thirties, maybe around 33. All right. So let's pause on that for a second. Cause I have some ideas on that, but I'm kind of curious who you were up to that point, because mm -hmm. I mean, that means that you've lived a long time, not how you live today. Um, where'd you grow up? Uh, Juneau, Alaska. Okay. Which is where yeah. you're back to now. So it's small town feel i'm guessing yeah, everyone knows everyone leans leans blue politically in a red state um yeah. a really eclectic mix of people um church communities um uh people in the fishing industry people in the government industry whatever so probably there you know was there even a gay bar when you were growing up oh no oh no so so, <laughs> so no part of the current day lgbtq ai plus 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 community asterisks, plus whatever. Um, <laughs> we're not part of your growing up. So it wasn't even like on your radar and you didn't have the internet. We're just kind of painting a picture here for those who, who are imagining that that wouldn't matter, but you, you didn't really have access to information. When you were 12 or so years old, did you have a sense of, of what you wanted to be later in life? Was, was college a given? Um, was there a career path that you thought you were supposed to have or wanted to have? Well, one thing that I really liked about the community that I was in, um, as small as it was, is that uh, people are pretty tight. Um, the education system uh, was pretty good. Uh, Alaska uh, had a lot of oil money, and it was everywhere. So the school systems were good. The teachers were paid well. And I felt like that process um, was, I, I was, I felt supported in my learning. And the expectation that I would go to college was there, even though I was um, from a single parent household, really, you know, much more rare back then. And, you know, a, a, um, definitely a poverty standard income. But still, I wasn't told that I couldn't achieve that. Um, I, I got that in my home life. And I felt like I was really fostered by the teachers that I had. So 
I did feel like a lot of things were possible. Um, and I think that made a huge difference. The other piece about being in Juneau and especially being in Alaska is that the expectation of girls um, was not quite the same as uh, elsewhere. Uh, you know, we're out in the snow, we're playing in the springtime and it's six inches of muddy slushy water out there and your playground is just a bunch of rocks and you're playing kickball and you know whatever it's it's uh it dresses skirts not practical whatsoever um a lot of people engaged in outdoor activities or athletics or skiing or whatever so the the trappings uh that are traditional for femininity weren't weren't so um harsh uh and i i think that really helped give me some breathing room a lot where the gender distress was uh, was actually a lot lower than it might have been otherwise. Mm -hmm. You know, I grew up uh, Long Island, New York, and when I was eight until I was fourteen, my dad had a flea market booth. And by the time I was ten, I worked there weekends, holidays, particularly during the Christmas rush. Um, and you know, I was given a lot of latitude of being who I am. And I remember I was short enough to stand in the box truck and they would throw boxes at me and I'd have to Tetris them quickly. Or sometimes I'd be in there throwing them back out <laughs> as we were unpacking. And, uh, and looking back, yeah, similar to you, like I just kind of had a lot of latitude for how I showed up. And so I wasn't in great distress or really like thinking about it. Um, my sister was holding down the fort for the femininity part of what a girl should be and no one had any great expectations. And so I, I, it is interesting having that background changes the distress as you described. Um, but you did, you off to college, did that introduce you to like where, at what point do you sort of cross paths and discover that there's this world out there and, you know, how to define how you identified? Well, I uh, left Juneau with my VW bug packed to the gills on the Alaska State Ferries, went to Seattle, and, uh, and started my first year of college at a uh, Christian liberal arts college. Um, I loved the campus. It was beautiful. I loved the size of the school. It wasn't too big. Um, and man, it is not the place to uh, to come out as anything. The, the religious uh, expectations, as a matter of fact, um, <laughs> no one believes me when I say this, but my college application had all the things that you fill out that are typical. And then it, and it says, oh yeah, and have you ever in the past or do you currently engage in homosexual activity? Yes or no. Um, that was on my application back then. And, you know, at the at the time, I was like, I don't even know what that means. Now, <laughs> how weird. Um, but in essence, you know, when I got to Seattle, I met other people like me, and um, and they shared their stories with me that really resonated, especially with respect to um, sexuality, sexual orientation. Um, and I realized that something that I didn't think was possible was um, had my first uh, coming out. And, and living and finding a lesbian community um, and feeling a great degree of acceptance, validation, celebration, inclusion, and a lot of life possibilities that I hadn't anticipated uh, before that could be possible. 
Now, the problem with that, and especially in those in the early 80s, is that uh, it didn't mean that a lot of career paths were going to open up for me. Um, the, the college debacle was a debacle. Um, I didn't even last a year because it was such an impressive environment. Um, so, um, yeah, so I stepped out and I got a job making pizza. And I made a lot of pizzas. I've delivered a lot of pizzas. I've run a delivery or run a restaurant that made pizzas. So uh, many times I will say everything I learned, you know, I did not learn in kindergarten, but I did learn in pizza. Um, um, so it took me a while to, for sure, to try to find what I was going to be doing with my life. Uh, because I felt like that if I'm going to be who I am authentic in that way, then the typical paths for careers and opportunities would be closed to me. Um, and I, I just didn't know what to do with that. Uh, fast forward to my early thirties, when I began understanding more about gender identity and what that meant for me and what I might need to do about that, even more so I could not see what type of future would be ahead at all, at all, 100% no way. Um, so that said, uh, I took it step by step. And, you know, I had a conversation with uh, my sister, I had a conversation with a friend, a coworker about my gender exploration and, and my transition steps. And lo and behold, those conversations are landing me right here having one with you. Wow. I, I also just to like, point out the timing, you know, you're, you're talking about early 80s for when you were trying out the college. And then decade later, right, you're in the 90s, when you're talking about a gender transition, am I getting the timing right? Close. Uh, late, mid to late 90s was when I first understood that a gender transition was even possible. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think I started taking a s initial steps, maybe, yeah, late 90s, 97, 98, something like that. Leslie Feinberg, um, author of Stonebridge Blues, came to our campus. I went to Stony Brook University at the end of uh, the fall semester and challenged us to add T, transgender, to the then LGBA name. And the B had only been in since maybe 92. Uh, and when I kind of wandered into the community in 94, they... And I wandered in having no clue about my gender or sexuality. I'm an advocate. Um, they were trying to figure out like where I fell. You know, uh, they didn't say, are you bisexual? They're like, they asked if I was a lesbian. And I said, oh, no, I'm straight, which totally blew their minds. Uh, and I, I just said, I'm not going to label anymore. But it, it, the reason it blew their minds is because they were still struggling with where to do with bisexuals in the community. It had been like this tenuous, like five-year battle and so not that many years later, she Les, Leslie comes and they say, hey, let's do this instead. And I was upset because the group ran ahead and did it without much thought. So basically yeah. the next meeting, they added the T. And I walked in five minutes late, decision was done. And I was like, but you didn't change your programming. There's no policy change. We don't have to talk to each other. And I was identifying as you know, kind of a question mark. <laughs> I, I didn't have, like, I was just like kind of floating around the community. Um, but to go from that moment where it was just sort of beginning to be understood to now where there's just so much more for young people. And, you know, 
back then young people were people in college. Now young people are people in grade school. Um, we really couldn't have foreseen, I could not have foreseen there being people coming out that young or having services for them. Like it just kind of bogs my mind how much we've advanced in 20 plus years. Um, but yeah, I, I, uh, you mentioned earlier how people treat you based on how they perceive you. And I had a moment at a true spirit conference in DC and true spirit was a space for, I would say people who are masculine of center might be the terminology we'd use now. Um, and I walked in and people, the conference thought, and I was not yet on hormones, uh, that I was someone's boyfriend who was supportive. And when I walked out <laughs> and I stopped at some random rest stop, people glared at me because I was a dyke. <laughs> and I was like, huh, this is interesting. <laughs> right. Gender is an interaction. Like, right. Wow. Right. <laughs> well, it was really nice to hear you comment about the uh, adding the T because it was just so quick. And it was so much it, from my perspective in the my in the framework of, okay, let's just get it over with. Let's make sure it's lowercase, not uppercase. So we're going to add you, and you just need to know your place. T for token, um, T for a little mascot, you know, um, and and now be quiet. That's how I felt like it went. And what was interesting in my work, because that's when my um, conference was starting and things like that, is that there were people of certain generations, um, new, younger generations coming in, taking to heart LGBT uh, and thinking, well, and I should have access to all of these resources and, and uh, things that could help support me. I should be able to find community. And no, no, that didn't, it wasn't there yet. Um, it had to come, it had to, the tea showed up before anything was there. Yeah. It was window dressing before there was substance. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. Which, is, which yeah. is interesting because, uh, you know, in Washington state, uh, protections for gender identity and gender expression showed up in 2006 before anybody really even thought what that meant or how that might apply. And so when the, um, the state superintendent's office issued guidance for schools, for K through 12 schools about what gender inclusion means. Uh, they put out the, well, it means this, 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 and this. Um, and no one was prepared for it. No one had thought about it. No one knew how to implement that. Oh, they just get to go use this bathroom. Oh, you just changed the name on the transcript. Wait a minute. No, no, no. So it was interesting, the cart before the horse kind of thing again. Yeah, I remember meeting uh, Transsexual Menace at my first Creating Change conference in 1995, uh, Detroit. I think it was 95 or 96. Um, and they were there out there, you know, really being visible and you know, led by an attorney. So they also knew the legal landscape as well. Uh, interesting that I later ended up working for Gay and Lesbian Advocates and Defenders, which changed their name a little while ago to GLBTQ Legal Advocates and Defenders, kind of to your point where everyone made sure they include the full alphabet. Um, but early on, I mean, it was it was definitely not, it was very periphery for a long time. And so when, when you started to think about this conference in 2000, 2001, um, your plan was to kind of almost have an unconference, you know, are you familiar with the model? 
Like you, you host it and everyone shows up with their own programming. I, I get the gist of what you're saying. And it wasn't quite that open. Um, it was just a recognition like, Hey, uh, and, and the conference started uh, masculine of center also. Mm-hmm. Um, hey, approximately a third of these folks are going to identify or, or move through or engage in gay male community. About a third are going to be out there in the straight heterosexual world. And then another third are going to be in, in lesbian community or on the periphery. Um, it was a real, uh, of course, broad stroke um, delineation, but that was uh, a little bit of the, how the programming leaned. Mm-hmm. Um, but the, compared to Gender Odyssey at its peak in terms of having about 175 sessions, I believe that there might have been 30 at that very first one. So everybody, not everybody, but a lot of people were lamenting about what wasn't there. And I thought, are you kidding me? (laughs) The fact that we even are under this roof is a miracle. Yeah, Um, People came from other countries. They came from all over the U.S., the fact that we had 300 something people was to me a miracle because I knew maybe five people, trans people in, in Seattle, Washington. So it was an interesting um, combination of massive gratitude for being able to come together. And then also, this is so not enough. Mm-hmm. Um, that's that's an intense place to be. I had an opportunity to help Sue Hyde uh, with the Creating Change Conference in 2004 and was in the office and witnessed to all the <laughs> requests. Um, and, and it was interesting because you would see how something would not quite rise to the surface of being a program. Um, and one year someone came and, and there was no programming for asexuality. This is way before we understood even what ACEs was. Um, but she s- said, I want to talk about this and tweeted back when we use Twitter as a, as a constant in a, in an event, I'll be in the lobby and a bunch of us met and we had a converse first time I ever had this conversation. And then, you know, five years later, there was one session. And then five years after that, there was like four (laughs) sessions or five, like it really kind of quickly grew as people realized that it was a nuance. It wasn't just the one-on-one. And I feel like the trans conversation was similar. Like you got your one, oh, 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 we have to treat it with <laughs> so much nuance. And so for you to go from 30 to 175 means you're really listening. How, how many years did you run uh, the Gender Odyssey conference? Uh, 20 until COVID. Wow. We're going we're gonna to pick it up again in the summer. But it's really morphed a lot, too. Um, I knew at the get-go that I wanted to uh, bring in those on the transmasculine spectrum first. And I wanted to do that because I knew there were a handful of conferences that were largely attended by the trans feminine identified people. And I thought, let's start it out this way and then open it up as, as we go along. And that's what we did. It did take a while. It took longer than I expected um, Mm. because something gets a reputation. Um, uh, Man, we could talk all night about the conference and the things that I, that showed up and the things to learn But one of the things, too, just to kind of just jump over a bunch of history is when those first parents started showing up. um, And I believe that first conference was 2004. I had three families show up and 
two of them brought their teens, their trans teens. And I'm looking at these, these three families with complete and utter disbelief, as in uh, you people don't exist. You as parents who are supporting this person, this young person don't exist. And you, my young friend, finding your voice at such a young age and opening your mouth and having language, that's impossible also. So it was a real mind blower. Um, and it, one of the one of the parents, uh, I looked at him, he's, you know, eight inches taller than me. I'm looking at somebody that's surely upper middle class. He's traveled across two state lines to get to this conference with his teen. Um, to me, he represents, he's white, um, he's heterosexual. Um, I'm assuming that every privilege box is one that he could probably check. And he's asking me what he should do with his kid. And I thought, this is a desperate human. <laughs> he doesn't know me. He And I just thought, I, I don't even know what to say to you. I wanted to say, hey, I don't know. I'm trying to find my way here. I'm barely on my feet. Good luck. But instead, I, I did my best to, to respond. And it was just, what would I have wanted if I was 15 and able to find some words? Well, believe your kid. So I said, you know, wherever it goes, even if it shifts and changes along the way, give your child some validation, believe them, um, make sure that they understand you're on this journey with them and roll your sleeves up and find the resources and support out there that you can. And also, since I had had, uh, quote, an expert in the uh, area of transgender, whatever, I don't even know how they described it back then, an expert who was advising my doctor on how to care for me and found out that that expert had only seen one patient beforehand. I just said, you got to know that your experts out there um, may know nothing. They may have only one person's experience to draw from. Uh, and they're not going to have the experience of working with young people. So real game changer, that, that coincides with the um, ability to connect more beyond emailing, you know, the, the, the social media explosion and all of that, the ability to connect with others has really propelled the trajectory of these families and their kids. And we're seeing the uh, we're seeing the explosion as a result, you know, the explosive reaction to their rapidly growing presence, their visible presence. Um, and nobody has time to keep up, not even me in it every day uh, for, for decades at this point. So I think um, <clears throat> when, when I step into uh, environments, whether that's with educators or medical providers or a corporate workplace environment or the, uh, the pre-K school, uh, I, just, I just cannot help but be ridiculously compassionate for the distress that people are experiencing um, because where are they suppo supposed to find this learning? Where are they, uh, how can they possibly access um, any type of shift in therapeutic approaches, 
Um, where are they going to get their research when it's it, it, it's not happening fast enough for anybody uh, to really to really access and be, and have benefit? So you know, whatever. I had to write that book. I swear to God, if nothing on planet Earth ever happened again, I had to finish that book. Trans children in today's schools, at the very least, to be able to say, here's 15 years worth of information. Um, here's, we may not know how it goes in schools, but here's a snapshot of time where we can see exactly the things that have happened, the things, the questions that show up, the situations that occur, the situations that do not occur. At the very least, we can look at something rather than uh, uh, float around in our brains in a, in a state of panic with only our imaginations to fuel worst case scenarios. I just want to thank you for writing that book because I'm part of a rainbow family group for my district. And, um, you know, we recently had a meeting with our middle school principals because we had some, some students who were going to be moving into seventh grade, uh, for this school year. And so over the summer we met them, I brought a copy of your book to the administrator who organized the meeting, all the principals, assistant principals were, and principals were writing down the name. And she wrote me and the, the administrator and said, this was really helpful. Uh, and I think it's like you said, like they, it's a black box. They can't even, they can't see in, they have no idea what might happen. And these are the people who are wanting to do right. Like, you know, we have a very fortunate, we have a school district that, that wants to do right, but they're very fearful of missteps. Um, the families that come to them need a lot of support and guidance, which they can't figure out how to provide. So to have me show up where I'm, I'm not in distress <laughs> um, was very helpful for them. <laughs> and so the families that are part of our rainbow group, like we're, we're, we're okay. We're here to advocate. And so we're trying to support the district in making these choices and changing these policies. And I'll give you a really concrete example. There's now um, individual garbage cans in the stalls of all the boys rooms in middle school and high school because lots of people menstruate that you wouldn't know menstruate and you don't want to force that person to have to carry something to a garbage can by a sink or outside in the hallway. And it's such a simple thing that they were like, what? Right. We're like, yeah, this should not take four months of research and study. <laughs> like, this oh, is right. like, call up the janitorial service and ask them to order X number of more containers, you know, a couple little waste baskets, right? <laughs> really simple stuff. But, but these, these are the things that a lot of people can't sort of foresee because they can't imagine that world. They've not, they've not walked those, those lives. It's a great concrete example, right? Uh, our very first conference, the, the, the um, conference facility didn't stock the toilet paper in the men's room because it just doesn't, need restocking as much as the women's room. And we all needed toilet paper. <laughs> and so one of the things I learned, you know, the learning happens every which way you look at it was talking to whatever convention facility we might be hosting our event and saying, hey, by the way, please make sure that they stock paper products properly, um, maybe more frequently than the schedule um, usually might be. Oh, oh. And you know, when it comes down to it and you want to figure out how to be gender inclusive in schools, it really comes down to those kinds of small details. 
uh, we can we can throw our hands in the air and and talk about the safety and privacy needs of of not the trans kid but all the other kids. Um, what we need to recognize is that if we are addressing the safety and privacy needs of a trans or non-binary kid, we're actually uh, and, and we we look at something fresh. Uh, typical practices that we take for granted and look at it fresh. Um, those steps that we might take to help that gender diverse child also deeply benefit all the other kids. And that shows up in questions about locker rooms and showers. And uh, I remember one administrator uh, at a school district who said, yeah, well, what about the locker rooms and the kids all showering naked and whatever, whatever. It's the thing that was brought up over and over. And I, I just looked at the other people in the room. I said, well, tell me, do, do the kids still use the showers? Um, and every, every head in the room said, no, they don't. And that, and so the one who asked that question, he was very surprised. And somebody else said, no, we use that for storage. And, and I've heard in, that too. Yeah, in my journey of learning, because why do these specific questions come up so often over and over? Um, you know, I want to understand that too. I want to find out where that question's coming from, what they think might happen. And I actually found a New York Times article from 1995. So quite some time ago, nothing to do with trans kids at all. Um, but it was about privacy in locker rooms and that the students were deeply uninterested in showering uh, and being naked in front of their peers. And they felt like that practice of prior generations was barbaric uh, and couldn't and felt like, and, and understandably so felt like it was violating their rights. Uh, and so even in, in 1995, you know, a young woman who, again, these are not transgender kids. These are just kids for various reasons, wanting to greater degree of privacy uh, and, and pursuing her rights to, to have that and prevailing. So, um, yeah, it's, it, it really kind of makes the questions a moot point. And even if kids are um, having it, even if there are expectations for them to shower in certain situations, I know there, there are some important ones, uh, swimming team members, um, people who wrestle, you know, they're sweat, they're on sweaty mats together. It's important to, uh, for health reasons. Um, then how do you ensure that you're uh, protecting the privacy needs of all those kids? Cause yeah. they want it. <laughs> it's an excellent example. I, I could never, imagine why people would have chosen the open format shower. Uh, and I've heard from many people that that is used for storage in their school because right. uh, no one's really right. using it. Right. How has the the launch of the book been? Because it came out fairly recently. Where has that led? Um, wh what are your goals for the book? Well, holy moly. Um, you know, not a not a prolific writer, it's my first full-length book, to have been able to um, have it published by Oxford University Press was a miracle. Um, to have it come out when it did was also uh, quite, uh, quite a serendipitous timing. 
Um, and day after publication, I'm on NPR's Fresh Air for a 45-minute segment talking about the book. Um, it's been pretty pretty profound um, to have all of the convergence of such um, uh, of those things happening. Uh, I'm just grateful to be able to the way the way I describe it is is gift out the things that I've learned and the experience. Uh, experiences of others, um, uh, all of those different schools all across the country that I've encountered. So mm -hmm. being able to share those real life experiences, at the very least, if people are saying, well, I just don't know how this is going to go, they can they can read some examples of situations and how it has gone. Right. Um, I'm grateful. I'm really grateful to do that. I, I felt actually pretty desperate to do that because when people have an opportunity to have their questions addressed, they calm down. Um, it might not, it might, they might not grab the trans flag and be ready to march down the street, but they do get back to a place of recognizing that kids are kids, that these children are, are members of their community, that they need to look after them, um, that these are families within their community. Uh, and and that that's my primary goal with that. So also having done a, a good percentage of work in Washington State and to see that progression over what it's been over 15 years now, maybe 17, I'm not quite sure. Yeah, at least 17. But to see that progression and how across the state, even in the more politically conservative environments, there's continued progression, increased confidence, um, navigating questions of, of uh, political leanings and faith-based perspectives and addressing those questions. At the very least, the, uh, the educators, the administrators, the coaches, all of that feel more and more confident every day to be able to uh, assuage those fears um, that that show up, so that progression has been pretty phenomenal. And watching in recent years, as as questions about athletic competition and all that come about, well, you got 17 years of a track record to look at. What does it say? Well, I can report on that, and I did. It's uh, two two chapters dedicated uh, in the book to those questions. Uh, and those questions are different um, when it comes to K-12 sports compared to college or Olympic or professional athletics. Mm -hmm. So we got to bring in the nuance there um, and consider that. So to the, to the other part of your question about, you know, what, where do I hope it goes? I want this book to be in uh, any university that has a department of education. So teachers, prospective teachers who might uh, want to learn more about gender diverse kids, I want them to be able to see that. Um, of course, I wanted to uh, go to school districts across the nation because uh, there's so many uh, amazing, brilliant people working in all these districts, fielding all of these questions and concerns, and they don't have uh, the backstory. Uh, they don't ha have a... Um, they don't have the experience yet to draw from to be able to address those questions. 
So I want to see that happen. And I want to figure out um, the best ways that I can to go ahead and, you know, on a faster timeline than in Washington state, which is day by day, year by year, um, see if this information can't be helpful to at least get more communities on a better start uh, for gender inclusion. It's wonderful. And I'm really proud that you were able to pull this off. I know that writing any book is not easy. Writing this kind of book, which is like a, you know, almost a lifetime of knowledge that you've accrued personally, professionally, and, you know, putting in a way that people could reference and that someone who knows very little on this topic could find comfort in reading. Um, you really accomplished that. So, and I, and I've already seen that from people I've handed this book to, and I hope people listening will go to the show notes at ontheschmooze.com. I'll have a link there. You'll find it also. It's on Amazon. Um, we'll, we'll make sure people know how to find the book. Um, we're about to wrap up, but before we get to our wrap up question, we're gonna have a quick word from our sponsor. All right, my favorite wrap-up question is this, uh, Aiden. I'm, I'm hoping we don't wait another 20 years to talk again. <laughs> it's been it hasn't been a whole 20 years, but it's been a while since you and I have chatted. So let's say a year from now we we're you know catching up again, and uh, I'm going to want to know everything you've been up to in the previous year. What are we going to be celebrating on your behalf a year from now? What are you most looking forward to in the year ahead? I think that uh, irrespective of the reasons that volatility is showing up. Um, independent of legislative bills that are uh, all over the country attempting to restrict rights and all of that. All of those things coming together mean that we have conversations. And I can go all the way back to day one with my gender transition and know that if I sit down with someone and have a conversation, uh, it's very likely I won't lose that relationship. It's very likely that that person will understand my experience much better. And the thing that was seeming to tear us apart um, will actually dissipate. And we will, be, we will be back together in terms of our connections and um, the things that brought us together as friends or family or coworkers or whatever. Um, I think we're gonna see that. Uh, I don't know, I don't know the timeline on it, but I get up every day uh, and and have those conversations daily uh, with any number of folks. And I I, um, I think that, when, again, when we have those discussions, we learn more. And then our fear does dissipate. It may not go away entirely, but we will not see that same intensity over time. If that takes a year, if that takes a couple of years, I just don't know. I, I guess one other thing that I will add is, the brilliance of, of stepping into those conversations, even if we're on, on seemingly really opposing sides, I've had some beautiful and brilliant conversations with people that did not expect to budge one iota. But we focused on our shared values, our shared goals, and found that, you know, as humans, um, uh, there was nothing to argue about in terms of treating each other respectfully, um, treating each other with kindness and dignity, uh, and that inclusion, belonging matters to everyone. Stepping into that foundation, you know, we're we're on our way. Whatever legislatures are doing on any different day is is kind of uh, to me, it's kind of details, um, painful and harsh details, but still. 
It's super powerful. It's powerful what you're doing. It's powerful those conversations and also the lessons that we can glean from you having those kinds of conversations for us to have with anyone on a difficult topic. Because, you know, I'm thinking about Black Lives Matters and Blue Line and all this stuff. Like, you know, how do you hold space and find that common humanity? And it sounds like you're really walking the walk. And as far as doing that, I'm very excited to see your progress, celebrate your progress a year from now. Know there's always more work to be done to play my own role. And for me, I, you know, I feel like my biggest activism lately has been a, a visible out trans business person, um, whether I'm being hired by clients to do events or I'm coaching someone or doing consulting. It's like being visible, being LGBT certified um, as a business enterprise, like having that kind of visibility um, because, you know, it's not something people would see right away and, and know, but then it's one more moment from they go, oh, check my assumptions. Oh, okay. You know, it's like little things that, that can really change. And I think you're doing a tremendous amount of work in that area, particularly for all these young people that are really starting to come out these incredibly young ages, um, ages that I could not have foreseen or imagined. Thank you for being here. Thank you for sharing. And, uh, I just look forward to, to watching your progress. Thanks for joining us. Oh, it's awesome. Awesome to connect. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Aiden. What is your key takeaway? Something you'll put into action this week that you'll benefit from for years to come. Share what resonated with you in the show notes at ontheschmooze.com. Look for episode 360. That's also where you'll find all the links and resources from today's show, as well as all the archived episodes. Reach out and let me know which are your favorite interviews. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with that one friend you know would love to hear it. Subscribe or follow for free so you don't miss next week's show. Are you a fan? That's awesome. I'd love to read your review. Thank you in advance. I look forward to connecting again next week when I'll be interviewing another talent professional who overcame challenges on their way to success. I'll ask probing questions to get them to share untold stories about their leadership and entrepreneurial journey and how they built and sustained the professional network. Until then, have an amazing week. Thanks for listening to On the Schmooze podcast at www.ontheschmooze.com. That's On the Schmooze, S-C-H-M-O-O-Z-E. This podcast is heard along the Marketing Podcast Network. For more great marketing podcasts, visit marketingpodcasts.net.